Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Gav, what time is it there? It is half past 4. It's very close to half a quarter to 5 in the morning on Thursday oh. morning. Hello from the future. We have snacks. We have Irish salted beef jerky. That's Ooh. how dynamic and cool the future is. Oh, how are you coping? Are you wrecked? I'm doing okay, actually. There is a kind of a, a, a weird exhilaration with the, the high-flying, jet-setting, glamour life that is entailed in all of this and doing podcasts on laptop, Wi-Fi, webcams at the quarter to five in the morning. But I'll do it okay. Well, we commend you for not joining us in your pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're very welcome along to the final episode in season one of the Group Chat podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King, joined in studio by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. All right. All right? Yeah, yeah. And from Japan, political correspondent Gavin Riley. Konnichiwa. How are you? <laughs> Beautifully done. Cultural sensitivity across the board there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, this is our final episode, as you mentioned, in season one of the podcast. We're coming back on the 1st of September. Can you believe it? I can't believe we're it. We're jumping this on people that were taking a season break. I don't we, know how people will cope. We never told them before now, did we? No, surprise, we're away. Surprise. No. <laughs> taking August off. I mean, but Gav, I suppose it is a little bit quiet. It gets a bit quieter. Now, we're still going to be on the news every evening, by the way. So please do tune in to the news at 5.30 and 7. And of course, at 12.30 at lunchtime. The news will still go because the news never sleeps. But uh We are taking a slight hiatus for the month of August, aren't we, Gav? Yeah, the, the news never, in fairness, say, yeah, never stops, but it does get a little bit thinner. Uh, that often the August agenda is dominated by international news and stuff because, like, you don't realise until you, you actually work in news how much news is generated by the doll being on or politicians being around or civil servants being in full speed and doing stuff. And in August, it just doesn't happen quite as much because people are laid down. So August can sometimes be a a little bit of a follow period. So obviously the news will still be around and will all be, still be on TV, on the news at 12.30 and 5.30 and 7 and maybe on the Tonight Show and maybe on R&AM as well. Uh, but we think just being a little bit thinner and of course almost needing a bit of a breather. We're not going to be around for a couple of weeks. And now speaking of news, we've had some news of our own today, Richard. Oh, drum roll. <laughs> Big announcements. We're going to the main stage. Well, not the main stage. We're, We're going, going to, to Electric Picnic. We're going to EP. <laughs> live show, live sharing the billing with Megan The Stallion uh, with Snow Patrol. With Dermot Kennedy. It is the group chat. Amazing. Uh, amazing. I'm delighted now. Our first yeah. ever live show. Yes, yes. Saturday Electric Picnic. Do come yeah. on down to the Ahir Now podcast stage in Minefield. Minefield, yeah. So, yeah. I can't wait. It's been a long time since I've done anything down at Electric Picnic. So, um, yeah. Oh, Sarah, well, I've never again. performed at Electric Picnic. So, I love how you're like, this isn't your first time. I think, it's, I think, this is, I think it's my it's third or fourth time now. Okay. Yeah. So, like... You should pick up like stripes. You should be collecting wristbands, I should be at this point. Or, so yeah. you're a veteran from being on stage. I'm 35 and pale and geeky and actually slightly uh, <laughs> weirdly pan the face because of the working hours. I have never been to Electric Picnic because I am just mm. so fundamentally square. Uh, so we will make for an I'm interesting combo of you being an onstage <laughs> veteran and me having never said much to The you've nerds never, are taking over. He's never, you've never been to EP. Never been. Gav. There you go. This is phenomenal. Well, the I things you'll one, see. 
The place is your goal, Gav. <laughs> I rem- I've only been once, but I remember like the time I went, I was so blown away by how spectacular the attention to detail is at Electric Picnic. You know, when you go through like the likes of the body and soul area and you're like looking at things that are like in the trees, like it's just so detailed. And so like, it's a beautiful festival. So I, for one, am very excited. It is going to be our first live show. We're going to be there on the Saturday. Is it three o'clock is our time, did you say? Yep, three o'clock in the afternoon, so four o'clock, so... Who knows what we're going to do? We haven't, we haven't thought that far ahead, but we'll see what's going on. The festival is a sellout, isn't it? So unfortunately, you can only go if you have tickets at the moment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But like, that's, that's tens of thousands of people who are potentially... No, no, that's what I'm saying. So if you have EP tickets, like, you know, pencil us in Let well, us know if you're down. already a complete sellout. It's going to be a sellout now. <laughs> <laughs> so we are buzzing. So Gav, what are you doing in Japan? Tell us what's going on. What am I doing in Japan? I'm here following uh, on Patrick Michal Martin TD, uh, who is in Japan right now. In fact, he's going to be leaving Japan in around seven hours after we record this. Uh, he is doing a four or five day whistle stop uh, trip to the Far East, going to Japan and Singapore. Uh, a little bit to have meetings with uh, the prime ministers of those countries because there's been outstanding invites, which for pretty obvious reasons for the last two years, he hasn't been able to take up. But he's also been trying to um, promote Irish businesses in this part of the world, particularly now because as international travels begins to heat up and it's possible for business travel to take place in a way that it couldn't for a couple of years. They're just trying to really strike while the iron is hot while there's a bit of enthusiasm about international business travel again, just to try and help open the doors for Irish communities. And those companies he's been meeting with the Irish Chambers of Commerce in Japan and Singapore. He's been meeting with local employers groups to try and make sure that they know that Ireland is a firm part of the EU, an English-speaking country, which can then offer them easy access to the rest of the European single market and, and have good access to Britain as well. So he's really just trying to go out there and read from the Gospel of Aaron and just make sure that Asia knows that we're there and that we're open for business and try and keep job creation going the way that it has been for the last couple of years. You've had your hands full on this trip, Gav, I understand, that you've been sort of pulling double duty out of necessity. Yes, the camera and journo mix. Um, so through a series of unfortunate malaises, uh, namely our first designated camera crew uh, falling ill with COVID uh, just before being due to get everything ready to go out. And then a second camera crew being unable to pass his PCR test, which is mandatory for Japan. I have been having to film pretty much all of my own material. Now, luckily enough, there are some officially hired camera operators who've been hired by the Irish Embassy to attend some of the events, so we're still able to get high-quality stuff. Uh, but for my own pieces of camera and for some other extraneous filming and bits and pieces that I'm doing on the side, as well as being here as well, you're filming it all uh, on Mojo, mobile journalism, as it's formally called, which is a nice way of dressing up the fact that you're shooting stuff on a phone. Now, it's more uh, sophisticated than it sounds. We do have decent lighting. You've got a proper formal microphone that plugs into a phone so that you're getting it in decent sound quality, at least. Um, it is not, obviously, as polished as the finished article, and it does mean that there's a lot, a lot more sweating around trying to make sure that the lighting is right and the angle is right and that all of the kit is all literally working as you intended to. Uh, but it, it's an interesting challenge, particularly when you're... 9,000 miles from home, you don't always have the same tech support as you might do otherwise. And uh, word on the street is you've been accused of trying to blind the Taoiseach with your ring light. <laughs> uh, the word on the street is that I really shouldn't tell you that gossip in our group chat anymore. Uh, yeah, it's because uh, at our uh, stand-up piece of camera, our, our little daily press conference that we had with the Taoiseach this evening, we were standing in front of a skyscraper window, which had lovely shots of the Tokyo skyline behind. But uh, naturally, when you stand in front of a window, then there's always a danger of you being silhouetted in that. And of course, that's no good for TV news. So I have a ring light, which I have put on a tripod, which I was using to try and illuminate the Taoiseach. And uh, frankly, this evening, there's no other way to dress this up. Frankly, this evening, when I turned on the lighting to what I thought was a necessary level to make sure the Taoiseach wasn't totally silhouetted, uh, basically, he was blind and asked me to turn it down because he just wouldn't be able to 
uh, make out any of us. He'd just be looking at a giant ring light as if he was basically entering the next life. Uh, so I didn't want to find the fella. So uh, if anyone saw him on Wednesday evening's news and thought he might not be looking as well lit as possible, uh, basically he asked me to turn the light down because I was about to burn his retinas to crisp. Okay, so a moment to appreciate our camera crews who do an incredible job. Definitely, uh, Gavin's certainly missing Amen. all of you uh, this week while he's away in Japan. Okay, I want to move on, guys, to the biggest story this week, Richard. Uh, European heatwave, climate crisis, all overlapping, hundreds dead across Europe. Yeah. Uh, as a result of these rising temperatures, you know, some people might say, oh, we're enjoying the sunny weather, you know, let us have it. But the reality behind this is far more serious. Yeah, I mean, the best way of looking at it, Dara, is like you say, it's the biggest story of the week. It's the biggest story of all time. Yeah. It's literally about the survival of our species on the planet. This is, according to scientists, a really... Uh, a, a warning shot across the bows of Western society that, you know, climate change has arrived in Europe in a very real and destructive sense and it's ahead of schedule. Um, we have seen multiple countries break their uh, all-time temperature records. Here in Ireland on the hottest day, we've seen in 135 years at least, potentially the hottest ever because there's some dispute about that 1887 Kilkenny Castle thing, like nine weather stations across the country recording their all-time temperatures. You've had devastating fires in London, we saw, of course, in France and Spain, tens and tens of thousands of people having to evacuate their homes. Still in Spain, around 500 now. 500, according to the Prime Minister there, and it potentially is higher than that. Um, some estimates saying as many as 2,000 people across the continent have already died as a result of this. Mm. The, co- the continent is effectively sweltered, burned and, you know, buckled at a time when, you know, governments across Europe are still figuring out, ah, what will we do about it? Mm. Um, it really is alarming. I'm, I'm sure everybody has seen. I mean, even I think I think when you're talking about wake up calls, when you see what happens in London on Monday, you have like tabloids in the UK saying, "Oh, look at these snowflakes giving out about a heat warning," and then on Wednesday they're forced to hottest day ever, Britain burns. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You're forced to confront it. There's no ignoring it anymore. Um, shocking stuff, really. Obviously, here in Ireland we had. Um, quite a milder experience of it, mm. but we're still affected by this hot air coming from North Africa, which is basically brought... Actually, if you've seen the dust in your car, you'll even see this. Oh, That's yeah. all Sahara dust that's yeah. been brought up with this. But this is going to become more and more frequent. It is already hotter than it has ever been. Um, it's affecting a wider span of area, and now there's no more avoiding it. We are going to have to live with the impacts of climate change. The only question is now what we do about making it perhaps not the worst case scenario. And Gavin, is this something that's followed the Taoiseach to Japan, questions around yeah, all of this? Uh, because we have been asking him about some of the questions that the government has up until now uh, been putting off because uh, in the next couple of weeks, it's in a bit of fortune that we're not going to be around actually to cover it when it does happen. But the thing is, we don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, cabinet ministers are going to sign off on uh, actual physical plans for Ireland's carbon emissions. So right now we know that we have to have our uh, carbon dioxide emissions by the year 2030 relative to 2018 if we are to try and keep uh, global warming at an acceptable level. And although you have to say that after this week, what we thought was an acceptable level might need to be revisited because we didn't realise that uh, allowing emissions to rise to a certain level would still result in the weather being quite as extreme as it is. But the government has been uh, facing some real internal dilemmas in all of this because they can't decide precisely how much each sector of Irish society and the Irish economy has to cut back. And particularly, agriculture is really becoming something, pardon the pun, of a sacred cow in this debate, because agriculture right now is looking at a situation where it's going to have to cut its emissions by somewhere between 
22 and 31% uh, of its 2018 levels. Now, that's already far less than every other sector of Irish society. Transport is looking at having to make cuts of somewhere between 15 and 60%. And there's other areas that are expected to cut their emissions by up to 70%. Agriculture is already the um, most impactful sector, if you want to put it that way, in terms of being responsible for most carbon emissions. And we're only asking it to cut by 22 to 31%. But the difference between what agriculture needs to do to cut by 22 and the difference between what it needs to do to achieve 31 uh, is enormous. Like if you're talking 31%, you're definitely talking about telling livestock farmers that they need to breed less animals, they need to make less money, that their, their lives are going to be fundamentally changed by not being able to put as much food on their own tables. Um, but if you only go for 22%, then that means that agriculture, the largest emitting sector of the economy, will be doing so little that the rest of us will have to do comparatively more, which is why you have newspaper headlines like there were at the start of this week about families maybe having to give up second cars if you're a two-car household because you'd have to achieve significant costs on transport. Now, the teacher says specifically, by the way, that isn't going to happen. We're not going to have circumstances where Ireland is going to be asking people to give up the second car in the household. It recognises that sometimes people have two careers, you work outside the home, you can't possibly share a car, all that sort of thing. But it's going to involve some really, really difficult conversations. And they were all expected to be excluded by now. Uh, and the Taoiseach was originally suggesting that all of those sectoral targets will be signed off next week. But when we asked him about all of this in light of the heat waves and in light of the other extreme elements of climate change we've seen around the world, uh, he was saying, well, we're going to do it in the next few weeks, which to me obviously suggests that there is still some serious internal angry in government about exactly how much agriculture is going to have to do, therefore, how much all the rest of us have got to do. And Richard, you've been working on this week. You've been speaking to some of those stakeholders, as Gavin mentioned. Yeah, well, like, this is something actually I think we should all be kind of annoyed about. Um, like, it's not just about the survival of our species. If we're looking about it, because people, the way that climate is often talked about when it's talked about in the media and it's talked about in politics is, well, what's it actually going to cost us? Mm. Well, it's going to cost us a hell of a lot anyway. Like, it's going to cost, uh, it's going to be a massive squeeze to get this done, especially if we're going to be in a situation where what has been happening is Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs, who signed up, they signed up for the programme for government. They signed up to cut our, car, our, our greenhouse gas emissions by 51% by 2030. And now they're backsliding on it because, well, the farm lobby says, don't do that to us. And we of want to do a lot of their voters, the reality is, are yeah, farmers. But like, what's that? What, what, are, what are voters going to Like, the, the thing of the matter, the, matter, the, the fact of the matter is, the more you do now, the less you have to do later, or the, 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 the less extreme the jump will be. So it's, I think it's incredibly depressing, to be honest, that we're in a situation where you have um, TDs who signed up. Again, they signed up to and they voted for the climate bill when they were in, when it was in the Dáil last year. And now they're like, let's undercut it. Let's undercut what needs to be done. Because it is going to cost us. It is going to cost us in our pocket. It will result, if, if agriculture doesn't go for the upper end of the scale, we're already talking about a cost of living crisis and energy bills. Get ready for a hell of a lot more if that doesn't happen. And I just want, I just find it so infuriating. And I, like, as a news journalist, I find it incredibly difficult to hear people who we, you ask about, you know, the difficulty it will be for agriculture and all that sort of stuff. And it will be difficult. But, and this is a problem actually, I'm going to come on to it in a minute. The government has done a terrible job at actually spelling out, well, what's the alternative? If, if we're going to ask the farmers to do more, well, what can we supplement their incomes with? Whether that's, you know, um, putting down solar panels on farms or building, you know, re-wetting lands, planting forestry, all that sort of stuff, biofuels. They're doing a terrible job at explaining and getting those plans in place. But they never explain. If you're going to save um, some of the pain for agriculture and pass it on to the rest of us, 
Who, what, what other sector? What, what, what are you going to ask the rest of the sectors to do? Like, who, 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 what sector should actually pick up that slack and do it? Because it is, it's going to cost all of us. And then we're going to be in a situation now, this is by 2030, this is eight years down the line, we have to do 51% of our greenhouse gas emissions. It's a hell of a lot. Yeah, that's not a realistic target in that space. But we're not time. doing anything. Yeah. We're not doing anything. And like, this is the thing as well as like, nowhere in Europe is doing it. Joe Biden in the White is sitting in the White House now at the moment and he's been humming and hawing about whether or not to declare a climate emergency. And he won't do it. He's he'll, he'll, like, because he's already found, we've talked about this multiple issues when it comes to the States. Joe Biden doesn't want to pull the trigger on doing anything which is mm. too controversial. He won't do it on this either. And it's literally the survival of our planet. And we're already seeing hundreds and hundreds of people die in Europe. And now we're left in a situation where, you know, we're hamstrung by the fact that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs don't want to hurt their constituents. And, I, and again, we talked about it actually briefly last week, Zara. Like, farmers individually want to do the right thing. Mm. But we don't have enough questions asked about farm lobbies. And we don't. They're incredibly powerful. They have an incredible sway on the conversation. And over the last, so say, say since 2013, that's, that's nine years ago, car, like emissions from farms have actually gone up. And we're all aware of what climate change is. How's it gone up in that time? It's incredible. I just find it incredibly frustrating. And we're st sitting in a situation where we're going to see heat waves like we've seen across this continent replicated again and again and again. We're going to see Irish towns and villages have to pick up the cost of flooding again and again and again. We're going to be in a situation where not just us, not just our children, our children's children are going to be living in a vastly worse world. And at some point, the planet is just going to shake off humanity like a second skin because we're done and we just absolutely balls it up for, for eternity. So good situation to be stuck in, I think, to be honest. Nice cheery end to the summer for I'm the group chat. Note. Okay, Gavin, anything <laughs> uh, left to add? Just three, I really three feel... points just on all of that. Um, just a very quick mention, when you mentioned the United States, actually, it's amazing how quickly you forget these things. But that was another one of the really controversial decisions that's been made by the US Supreme Court uh, in the last couple of weeks, where it ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency, the major American body, which had until now had the power to set climate change targets and to prescribe how it was going to be done. So even if there wasn't a huge amount of public buy-in, at least there was a state entity that could instruct you how to do it. Uh, the Supreme Court decided a couple of months ago that actually, no, it doesn't have that power, which has like dramatically put questions on what the United States, one of the largest emitters, can actually do uh, to cut its own emissions, which is a very cheery note. Uh, the other one is that there are a lot of people who might say, you know, well, you, we can get used to this. You know, Ireland's not used to having uh, temperatures in the low 30s, but countries in the continent do, and that, you know, they've learned to live with it. They have it as part of their summers. Those countries are still struggling with what's happening now, because where they might have been used to having temperatures in the mid-30s, they're not used to having temperatures in the low 40s. Like, Japan is not having a heat wave right now. Japan is just coming to the end of its rainy season. But Japan is built to have rainy seasons. They understand that it's happening. They've built all their infrastructure to accommodate the fact that for two or three months a year, it's so hot that it actually ends up raining. There's a lot of thunderstorms. And yet Japan this week has had an awful lot of the country under extreme weather warnings, that there's natural flood warnings in an awful lot of the prefectures because even their rainy season has been rainier than they have built their country to withstand. And the last point, which is perhaps the most uh, distressing one, and Richard mentioned that, you know, we haven't really cut our emissions very much. When we talk about 51%, it's now actually way more than 51%, because it's, it's 51% yeah. of what we were doing in 2018. And in spite of the pandemic, in spite of the fact that both people went absolutely nowhere for 2020 and for a lot of 2021, our emissions have gone up. Like we've gone in the wrong direction. Now, that's a natural thing. You have a population that's growing, there's more people around, they're doing more things. And the state has not prescribed actions to help them down. But we talk about 51%. Actually, it's closer to 55 or 60%, which means that we need to basically get rid of 
60% of all of the carbon damage stuff, the climate damage stuff that we're doing right now. And we need to get it done in eight years. Mm. Like we need to be starting yesterday. And uh, as long as the government goes on with this row internally about which sectors have to carry which can, it's only deferring mm. the action. That's really so, the world, Yeah, so we're already on the back foot, I suppose, Richard. Yeah, this. Uh, just another point on this is that, like, you'll often hear it said that Ireland is really sustainable and we paint ourselves as this green country to the world that we're like, you know, we have these wonderful green fields and we're environmentally friendly. We're the second highest emissions per capita in Europe. Um, we are in a situation where, you know, um, I think it's 12 of the warmest 20 years on record in Ireland have occurred over the past 20 years. Um, we're in a situation where, you know, you have the lads in suits, you have interest groups and you have lobbyists effectively saying, you know, let's do the minimum. Let's do the minimum. We can't do the minimum anymore. We've been doing the minimum for how long as we've identified this as a problem. Um, so we're effectively at a situation where actually on Tashka today, it was actually because there was an, an, a Rockdus committee there today where they were talking about methane. Methane is the problem from agriculture. It isn't essentially, carbon dioxide is one problem from, from, methane, from farming, but it's agri from methane from effectively the, the, the digestive systems of cows is our biggest problem. So that's why when you talk about the national herd is what you hear, mm -hmm. it's basically the amount of cows in the country and what they cause in terms of greenhouse gases. Um, that needs to be cut down. And on Tashka had to fact check repeatedly the fact that you know, it was put out and onto the record in, in, in the Oireachtas Committee that I know we're doing the right thing here and everything's grand. Like, you know, there's an awful lot of scurrying around and misinformation being put out there and it's not good enough anymore. At one point, actually, I just think that I, it's interesting to see people turn on this because I think this last week has put it onto people's agendas who haven't even thought about climate change before. And I think it might actually spur some action for a change, even though it's far too late. Have you seen this Twitter account called Celeb, Celeb Jets? It's basically, it keeps a track of celebrity private jets okay. and what they do and the flight paths. You'll have people like Kylie Jenner flying for four minutes on a private jet. I did see she posted quite an obnoxious picture the other day of her private jet and her boyfriend's private jet. And she said, will, will we take his or mine? And I thought Obscene. that's probably not great. So basically tracks it. So people like Kylie Jenner and Oprah Winfrey and Jay-Z and Steven Spielberg going on like five minute short spins where it'd be quicker to drive. Mm. And it, it actually measures the carbon output of that. So like say it's for like four tons for a 10 minute flight. So like the average output of carbon per head of capital Ireland is eight tonnes per year. So if you were 20 minutes on a private jet with Kylie Jenner, you're doing more than the average Irish person would in an entire year in those 20 minutes. It's incredibly grim. I think people are going to start turning on it. It's going to be interesting to watch that. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Okay, the Education Minister has announced changes to the sex education curriculum. Well, the proposal is out there. So this was published earlier this week. It's going to be up for consultation for the next three months. So anyone who wants to contribute to it and add their thoughts to it has three months to do it on the NCCA website. But the new curriculum is going to cover things like pornography, consent, sexual orientation, sexting, all these types of topics that are included. And it's part of the Junior Cert Sex Education Programme. Now, this is the first time, Gav, in 20 years that we've seen an overhaul uh, of this nature. It's uh, a long time overdue, Richard. Yeah, I think it's 20, yeah, 20, the year 2000 is when this was, was yeah. changed last. So it's more than 20 years. Yeah, actually. so yeah. like, I mean, Zara, you're you covering this during the week. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the, the, the key talking points there and obviously there was headlines on Monday morning about mm. porn on the curriculum and, and it sort of to the cat amongst the pigeons. But maybe it did and it ended up doing it in a good way because it got people talking about it. Yeah. So from what you were figuring out on this, what's been the general response from, from teachers and from students about how welcome this is? Because we've been hearing for so long about how important it is that we start to talk about consent and start to talk about pornography. Yeah. So what's the reaction been? Do you know, I actually think the reaction from a lot of groups that I spoke to has been very positive, yeah. actually. I haven't encountered anyone, actually, I struggled the other day to find a counterbalance on it. I don't think that anyone really disagrees that it's time to, to create change on this. I mean, the reality is that when you look at the sex education programme, it's always been based around the reproductive system and puberty, which really just doesn't cut the mustard anymore because we have so many different uh, relationships and, and, you know, there's so many different gender identities now that it just doesn't actually actually cover it. And we spoke to uh, the Irish Secondary School Students Union the other day, Rebecca Livingston, a uh, lovely student. She's 17, heading into fifth year. And she said to me, uh, Zara, like my sex education ended after second year. Um, like really, we didn't cover anything. There was nothing about same sex relationships. It was just completely kind of focused around the reproductive system bit of puberty and uh, that was it and she's going into fifth year now and she said that the RSE class admittedly had been kind of replaced with I think it might have been like a maths or Irish class to play catch up after kind of time missed during the lockdowns but ultimately you know they're crying out like students are crying out for this education I think at the moment the way the system is running the reality is we're not sending young people out into the world fully equipped with the information they need to actually, you know, have healthy sexual relationships. And I think the point has been made by loads of people over time, like really good communicators on this, whether they be, you know, Dr. Dr. Caroline West or Richie Sadler and that. Is that Sadler's book, by the way, is really excellent if you're trying to speak yeah. to your own teenagers about this. At the moment. But the, the fact is that you need to do it at an earlier age because I remember, yeah. and I'm sure you're, you're the same, when you hear from teachers, like they're seeing it in primary school, schoolyards, you know, kids with phones looking at stuff, whether that's pornography or other sort of sensitive images, that this is becoming a problem earlier and earlier. So you yeah. need to sort of address it at an earlier phase because, you know, if you think that this is a problem in late teenage years, that's kind of not where it is anymore. Well, that was the thing that was, was kind of pointed to Richard is the fact that children are stumbling across this material online. They're coming across porn online and they're, it's very confusing for them. They don't know how to deal with it. And they're in a situation then where they're not actually able to ask questions or there's, there's no place for them to go with all of this. Uh, we did ask people to send us in their responses in relation to their own sex education. I want to read you a few and then we're going to take a listen to some that were sent in Love as well. You know, uh, one person says here, uh, we were told that sex should t only take place in a long-term relationship or you'd be called easy. Another said, in t transition year, we were shown a graphic video of a woman giving birth to scare us into celibacy. Um, another says, the local priest came in and gave us sex education. Um, the others said, um, we were told you have to be married to have sex. 
um, and also had to be married when you got like a lot of sort of I suppose a lot of Catholic teachings really in what we've seen over the last 20 years yeah and like I remember I, I was trying to remember when we were sort of doing the research for this podcast what, what sex ed was like in, in my school I remember yeah. something very vague in primary school I'm sure it came up somewhere in SPHE. I think the best thing I actually came across a book when I was young enough about, and it was really sort of forward thinking and very sort of understanding in terms of sex Isn't education. Out of your own curiosity, it was. I think it was. I think my mum actually bought it for me. Oh, I think, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, but the fact that you have to go outside of school to actually learn about, you know, things like condoms and you know how different sex organs work. Yeah. The ludicrous indictment of, of how things are. But I'm interested to hear. Literally here, though, what, what, what people were sending into you in terms of what their own experience was. When we had our sex ed talk in primary school, uh, it was obviously a very Catholic sex ed that we got. And the lady that was giving it left a box that you could leave um, questions or anonymous questions in it. So one of the girls in my class put in a question about condoms and how to use condoms. And the question was read out and the answer that was given was there was no reason for us to hear or learn anything about condoms because we would only be having sex with our husbands and then so the condoms were irrelevant to us so that was the answer that was given she had a flip chart and on page one of the flip chart she had um drawn a flaccid penis and then to i suppose demonstrate how a man might get excited she flipped to the second page where she had one she'd drawn earlier, an erect penis. We were told if you had sex outside of a long, loving, committed relationship, you would be seen as easy and it would damage your self-esteem. Hi, Zara and gang. I love the podcast. Um, sex education in a convent in the Midlands was very limited. Uh, we were sat down with an amazing video with some meaningful music and instructed by a nun on the way that when two raindrops trickle down a window and come together as one, that's how babies are made. We were also told that the best means of gender identity was that boys wear blue and girls wear pink. So really interesting to hear some of those points from our listeners and thanks to those who sent in the voice notes. Um, Fair play. Really appreciate love that. Love a voice note. I love a voice note. Yeah, I play. love a voice note. Gavin, I suppose another thing that came up and Richard just touched on it there is the idea of sex education, obviously, you know, in the household and that, the, you know, there's a certain onus on families to speak to their, their young people about this. But not everyone is going to do that. And therefore, there has to be a base level that everyone gets an even footing to start out on that you can be guaranteed that like by the time you graduate or you go through the junior search, you graduate your secondary school that at least you're equipped with some level of information I mean Richard touched on his own I, like I went to a Catholic girls school um, you know like I remember some really horrific videos being shown to us in school I think I've spoken to you both about this before and we've had a couple of messages in in relation to that as well where videos were shown to, to young girls that were really inappropriate mm. and now as an adult I think back on that and I think how inappropriate that was but um you know, for you going to school, did you, did you feel like you left secondary school well-equipped in the mid-noughties in terms of sex education? Uh, not from the schooling at all. I went to a Catholic boarding school and there was literally no sex ed mentioned there. It was, now, it was an all-boys boarding school, so maybe it would have been a slightly strange environment to be doing it. But it was a Catholic boarding school and there was no mention of sex ed or no mention of relationships. There was a little bit on the junior biology curriculum about the birds and the bees, but there was nothing about the emotional side or about consent or about behaviour or anything of the sort. And I went through uh, primary school without having any formal mention of it either. I, I don't know why, because it certainly happens every other year. I remember being in fifth class, watching the sixth class guys go into a room next door where somebody showed them a video and gave them a talk to about how the world works. And some of them came back looking fairly pale. 
but that chapter never happened in my year. So I went through 14 years of education without ever having any kind of sex or relationships chat. I don't quite know exactly how that's surmised, but, but it's possible. And, and that's the point that's worth yeah. making. It's possible to go through 14 years and not have any of those chats at all. And that's mad. And of course, yes, the onus ought to be on parents to make sure that their kids are equipped to deal with the social side of the 21st century, as well as just knowing the basic facts about the birds and the bees. But the truth is that in a lot of households, that doesn't happen. And I think particularly nowadays, when so much of his exposure to sexual material happens in a way that their parents probably don't even understand is happening and can't comprehend, you know, about the easy availability of the world's largest ever collection of pornography to any kid with a smartphone who knows where to go looking. Um, you know, it, it is a natural thing. And the most important thing is that kids these days grow up, if they're going to be exposed to pornography, which they are, that they understand that it's not really a depiction of what relationships are actually like, that it bears as much resemblance to a normal, healthy relationship as WWE does to conflict resolution. Like, you know, people don't resolve conflicts in that way and people don't express themselves or don't have sexual relations in the way that is depicted. And I worry, to be honest, that a lot of kids don't understand that difference, that they see a lot of stuff act that in pornography. They think that that's just part of the course. That's what sexual interaction is like. And then that's how they bring their behaviors to the real world. That anything that steps in that acknowledges that porn does exist, that it isn't your good representation, it can only be a good thing, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well to see the reaction from groups like, um, you know, the, the Rape Crisis Network and, and other groups like that, especially as well, because I think it's worth pointing out that the conversation can't just be about pornography. And this comes under the, 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 the SPHE model mm. at Junior Cycle. Um, like there needs to be discussion about the sharing of intimate images. Yeah. Like this is something which happens and there's plenty of apps which are, you know, the most popular social and sharing apps, um, which, you know, facilitate that. And wasn't there a survey on Love Island this week, sorry, just to interrupt, that they said that 60-something percent of people admitted to sending a naked photo yeah. um, to a partner or to, to someone they were messaging? Yeah, so I just think that, that needs to be obviously a, a big focus of it too. But Zara, I just wanted to ask about what other things are on it. Like, I mean, is there going to be stuff about gender identity, you know, um, transgender rights and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. what, what sort of other issues are, are sort of covered on this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's saying here that there's going to be a lot of detail in relation to sort of gender identity and the various different types of relationships and a more open discussion around that. So I think, you know, there's certainly a move towards, you know, recognising that sex is not just about reproduction now, that there's, you know, healthy sexual relationships are a very normal part of, of everyday life. So absolutely, that is something that will be covered and it's, and it's long overdue, Richard, given the discussion that's been happening, particularly in recent weeks in relation to trans rights. Yeah, I think that's, it's very interesting to see how this goes but it's just it's interesting because I was hearing some teachers talk about it as well is that you know for SPHE over the years there's actually traditionally been a situation where in some schools you know teachers don't get any specific training that is when they're issue. going into that it is definitely which just shows that there has been a complete undervaluing of this mm. and this is something which clearly has gone awry where we have a situation now where people and kids are crying out for good information to how to handle things. Because if you think about how much has changed over since the year 2000 when this has changed, it's going to keep on changing as well. So like there needs to be a reactivity if you're designing curriculums for things like this, which bring into, you know, you know, the digital world, pornography, you know, gender identity, all these things around consent too, that this needs to be able to be adaptive and move with times too. Absolutely. Uh, okay, finally, guys, this evening, we're going to talk a little bit about the situation in Gormanston uh, at the army camp. Gav, I was out there yesterday. So the first of the Ukrainian refugees arrived there uh, yesterday uh, to stay there for what the government says will be up to seven days. Um, this is a temporary solution to what is an ongoing 
problem, a situation that they have seen and foreseen for several months now. Um, how did it come to this, do you think, Richard? It's really interesting because I remember we, way back when, I started our first, this. Our very first episode, we discussed this. Started the podcast, we were talking about, you know, there was discussion about numbers and how many people would Ireland be realistically expected to take in? And it kept on going up and up and up and up and up. And if you took it now, where we're at a situation where it's 43,000 or something 40, like that, 000, yeah. people who've come in from fleeing the war in their home country in Ukraine to Ireland, that would kind of be on kind of the medium to lower end of the scale. Yeah. So it is, it is interesting. I'm sure people have so many questions about how we've ended up in this situation where we're unable to cope with that if that is towards the lower end of what we might have expected. Mm -hmm. Like you talk to people in the department and they'll point to things like, well, there's been a spike recently where, you know, they expect it's because Russia has stepped up civilian attacks yeah. um, on certain parts of Ukraine. There's been a spread of the area of intense combat in the south and the east. So more places are being drawn into the firing lines there. But it does really bring questions. And I know you were out in Gormanston there mm. at the start of the week. I mean, how is that situation? Because obviously we've seen both the department and, you know, the Refugee Council say, well, like you can't have people staying oh, intense at this yeah. point in time. I mean, the Refugee Council is very concerned about this. They're very keen for there to be clarity on the fact that this will be a temporary measure. I was there yesterday. I spent the whole day there yesterday, actually. We're not actually allowed into the campus. Mm. They did provide us with some footage, um, some aerial shots and some footage from the camp, from the Defence Forces. But uh, as a journalist, I always like to see things firsthand myself personally, and I, I like to get in and we can film with our own cameras. We've put several requests in. They've acknowledged those requests, but they haven't uh, given us permission to do that yet. I did meet Aidan Garrity. I was telling you this uh, last night. He's a bus he's a bus operator by trade, Gavin. He's actually travelled back and forth to uh, Ukraine four times now. He's uh, rescued over 300... Yeah, over 300 people uh, since the conflict began. Um, and he is, I suppose, seasoned at making this journey back and forth now. And he, in the course of his journey, has stayed in many camps uh, with Ukrainian refugees while he's bringing them back. And he says there's a lot of camps like this based um, all over Europe. So he, you know, he sort of says, look, this is this is the norm across Europe. This is sort of how, yeah. how it works. Now, in saying that, um, those camps in Europe, and, you know, I've been to a few of them myself on the Ukrainian border in Poland, they're quite efficient in getting people through them quite quickly. As in, in a lot of cases in the European camps, they'll go in, they'll stay for a night or two, and then they'll be bussed out to something, you know, much more suitable and appropriate for a sort of medium-term solution. The question is, we're only a couple of days into this, so I suppose let's give government the benefit of the doubt on this. Let's see how it goes in terms of, you know, will it be seven days or will we find people... Uh, I find it very difficult to think that it's not going to be a permanent feature. I'm not saying that people will be living in Gormiston permanently themselves, but if you just look at the, the numbers that are still projected, like you say 43,000 people, and that's at the lower to medium end of the projections, and we still could have potentially tens of thousands more because Poland simply cannot accommodate all of them as they continue to come across the border. But like, if you look at the shortage, the shortage that there is now, the government is talking about rolling out another facility, like a second city west style facility. You basically you rent out a place in bulk and you immediately take all of those in as refugee accommodation. But that's only going to be another place for them to go to. But then the numbers are keep going to come. We're never going to have a situation where we have an abundance of empty or hotel rooms or empty accommodation ready for people to move into. There's always going to be, uh, you know, throughput issues. And there's always going to be inefficiencies where they're going to have to go somewhere before a formal bedroom comes available. And that's going to mean they're going to end up in, in army camps an awful lot. Now, you have to recognise that no country can easily accommodate a 1% increase in the population almost literally overnight. Like, that isn't the case for everyone. Ireland has taken more pro rata than other countries have, but ultimately everyone's going to be doing the same thing. Um, no one can be expected to have perfect accommodation for everyone immediately. 
But if people think that yeah, living in tents is an extreme short-term measure, I think you're going to be disappointed because there's going to be more people coming. We're going to have more acute accommodation shortages. And no matter how much stuff you bring onto the system, there's always going to be the short-term issue of where you go on the first night you come, the second night you come. And army camps, are unfortunately, are going to be centred to the solution of that. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this does play out over the months ahead because the department has been really putting on a brave face and saying things are going to improve because we're going to get those refurbished homes, you're going to get the modular homes coming on stream as well. Like you look at the situation where the system completely broke down and you had people sleeping in the old terminal building in Dublin airport. You had uh, women who I were talking to basically sleeping on the floor, on, on bare floor with their young kids because that's exactly who it always is. It's always women and very, very young kids. Um, sweating because it was swelteringly warm. This is an old terminal building which isn't built for accommodation. I just wonder, Zara, how it's going to work, especially when you look at, like, student accommodation has become a big part of this. So how's that going to work then when term time starts again? Well, the students will go back into the student accommodation and it means that the Ukrainian refugees will have to be housed somewhere else. So, you know, we're coming off air this week. Um, You know, when we come back on the 1st of September, it'll be a very different picture. It'll be interesting to see uh, how the government does manage to handle this. Kind of a full circle moment for the podcast, given that we kind of started the first week having this conversation. We have further insight now, I suppose, given the couple of months that are behind us, Gavin. But, um, you know, really where it goes to next is is not very clear. It's not clear at the moment. Uh, And one aspect of all of this as well, I know that we're we're running out of time, so we need to kind of wrap it up. But one aspect to all of this is that if you look at the likes of City West, I don't know if this has been said enough this week, City West was block booked at the start of June and it was intended to be used solely and exclusively for Ukrainian uh, asylum seekers or Ukrainian refugees. And almost three quarters of the accommodation there is not being used by people from Ukraine because with other changes going on elsewhere in the world, particularly the UK deciding now that everyone goes to Rwanda instead, uh, we have an awful lot more people who aren't coming from Ukraine specifically uh, coming to Ireland looking for international protection here as well. And that's another issue. And if you have somewhere like Ukraine or somewhere like City West, which is almost now effectively become a brand new direct vision centre because of the number of people that are there, how you're going to dismantle some of that by 2024, like the government's target is, is a whole other question. And, you know, much like we're talking about the, long, the hard decisions we put off on climate change, we don't know exactly how the state's going to dismantle something like direct provision when, in fact, the burden that that system is carrying is becoming greater by the day. Absolutely. Well, that's it. End Shanae. of season one. Quick thanks, I suppose, to yes. everybody for listening. I want to thank in particular Conan and Killian, the podfathers, yes. as they should be known. Uh, who have got us through this and put up with all of our wittering over the last number of months. So people don't, like, we we should mention Conan and Killian every week, actually, because they are so amazing. And uh, particularly Conan and his boomerang skills. Uh, the boys have been amazing <laughs> and they work late into the night to make sure the podcast is out on time in the mornings. Uh, thank you to the team in the gallery and in the studio here who, you know, work so hard every week, guys. We really appreciate it. Uh, to Mick and Joe, um, the executives behind all of this, I suppose. The, the scene, I know Mick loves listening to the podcast, so we'll give him a shout out. Um, just a reminder to subscribe. Uh, you might leave a review now that we're at the end of the season. You can leave a little review uh, on Apple. You can't write a review on Spotify, actually. But if you want to uh, leave a review... Uh, don't forget to tune into Virgin Media News every day, 12.35, Religiously. We are yeah, going to be here. there. We're still doing the day job. Yeah, we're still doing the day We are very much still doing the day job. Uh, the podcast, the group chat, will be back on the 1st of September. And then we will see you, if you have a ticket, at Electric Picnic on September 3rd. Fucking hats on. Well, he's ready. Let's go. <laughs> Close sticks, everyone. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.